0: Let's take our Bibles. We're going to Ephesians chapter two. I'm going to continue in a series with you that we're looking through the whole book of Ephesians. What number message is this, number four? You know, I, uh, I looked online. I took to see how long I preach. I preached 47 minutes last week. Can I just repent in dust and ashes? I am so sorry for preaching so long. Preach longer. Preach longer. Okay, I'll do that. I just want to say what the Lord has for us to say. For preaching, it's very difficult because it could be something that I want to say, but the preacher has to be very careful and walk in the spirit to such a degree that you're just going like God. I just want to say. I'm not saying that all 47 minutes was, you know, like 38 of them were the Holy Spirit and the rest were me. But I do want to say thank you for paying attention so well. You guys are very focused. Thank you for that. Ephesians 2, we're going to look at verses 1 to 10, and we've titled the series Resolute. So take your Bible, go to Ephesians chapter 2, and I'm going to preach for nine and a half minutes. This is going to be quick. This is going to be unbelievable. So you don't want to miss any of this. Take your Bible, go to the second chapter of Ephesians. I'm going to begin with a story. You'll see his image on the screen behind me. The little country schoolhouse was heated by an old-fashioned pot-bellied coal stove. The little boy had the job of coming to school early each day to start the fire and warm the room before his teacher and his classmates arrived. One morning, they arrived to find the schoolhouse engulfed in flames. They dragged the unconscious little boy out of the flaming building, more dead than alive. He had major burns all over the lower part of his body and was taken to a nearby county hospital. From his bed, the dreadfully burned, semi-conscious little boy faintly heard the doctor talking to his mother. The doctor told his mother that her son would surely die, which was for the best, really. For the terrible fire had devastated the lower half of his body. But the brave boy didn't want to die. He made up his mind that he would survive. And somehow, to the amazement of the physician, he did survive. When the mortal danger was past, he again heard the doctor and his mother speaking quietly And the mother was told that since the fire had destroyed so much flesh in the lower part of his body, it would be almost better if he had died since he was doomed to be a lifetime cripple with no use at all of his lower limbs. Once more, the brave boy made up his mind he would not be a cripple. He would walk, but unfortunately, from the waist down, he had no motor skills. His thin legs just dangled there, all but lifeless. Ultimately, he was released from the hospital. Every day, his mother would massage his little legs, but there was no feeling, no control, nothing. Yet his determination that he would walk was as strong as ever. When he wasn't in bed, he was confined to a wheelchair, and one sunny day, his mother wheeled him out into the yard to get some fresh air. This day, instead of sitting there, he threw himself from the chair. He pulled himself across the grass, dragging his legs behind him. He worked his way to the white picket fence bordering their lot. And with great effort, he raised himself up onto the fence. Then stake by stake, he began dragging himself along the fence, resolved that he would walk. He started to do this every day until he wore a smooth path all around the yard beside the fence. There was nothing he wanted more than to develop life in those legs. Ultimately, through his daily massages, his, mom, his mom's persistence and his resolute determination, he did develop The ability to stand up, then to walk, haltingly, then to walk by himself, and then to run. He began to walk to school, then run to school. To run to the sheer joy of running was all he ever longed for. Later in college, he made the track team. Still later at Madison Square Garden, this young man who was not expected to survive, who would surely never walk, who could never hope to run, this determined young man, Glenn Cunningham, ran the world's fastest mile. Let me go back to what it said about Glenn Cunningham here. It said that he had resolute determination. Resolute determination. And he went to that fence and he picked himself up and he walked and he walked and he walked. And I'm going to ask you, are you resolute in you following Jesus Christ as one of his disciples? That's what we're looking at in this series. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. I'm going to title this section of scripture, God did this. God did this. And I think Glenn could honestly say it really wasn't him. It was somebody that was much stronger than him, giving him the power to be able to do what he did. And so the title of these 10 verses is God did this. And we're going to look at the great salvation that God has granted to us in Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit of the Lord through the gospel. It's a God thing. It's a complete God thing. This is an important section of scripture in Paul's reason of thinking in his mind and in his heart. And I think it's important for us to dig into it. Now, we already seen that Paul is very caught up in a panoramic view of the glories of God and salvation. You remember in verses one and two how he said he was an apostle. He was an apostle called by God. His name was Saul and it became Paul and Jesus radically changed his life. And that's where we begin. Have you been radically changed by Jesus Christ? And you'll see that also in that radical change is a commitment to Jesus as Lord and Savior. And we saw that was said of the Ephesian believers there in that salutation or that opening greeting. And they were committed to Jesus. Man, do we need to be committed to him or what, church? Do we need to really lay our life down and say, Jesus you bought me with a price, it was your blood. I'm gonna make a choice and I'm gonna bow before you and it's not gonna be about my life, it's gonna be about your life through me, amen? Is that what a decision we're making as a church? Well, they did. Then we saw in verses three down to verse 14, this amazing panoramic view of salvation, election and redemption and inheritance and how God chose us before the foundations of the world. That's before I was born, before mom and dad ever thought of Chris Crow. God had his eye on me, and He his eye on you. And in time, in history, and in time, there would be a day when you repented of your sins and believed on his name for that salvation. It's a panoramic view that just completely catches Paul, and it takes him up into this place, and he's just beside himself. It's like he's climbing Everest. And he gets to the top and he shouts out and he says, God did this. And I want you to see it, Ephesians. So he goes from verses 15 down to the end of the chapter. And we looked at that and he prays because you need an anointing of the spirit of the Lord. You need him to give you illumination. Because no one takes the scripture and understands it spiritually unless the spirit of the living God is flowing and moving through you. So good that Scott said we need a fresh filling. We need the spirit of the Lord to open our eyes, right? And that's what Paul prayed. We we did a lot of prayers earlier. Listen, here's one of the primary prayer requests we should always pray, that God would give them enlightenment, that God would open the eyes of their understanding, that God would somehow make them see and respond. So now we're in chapter two. And Paul is going to say to us something very direct, very specific. Some of you would say, well, that's pretty harsh. Do we really need to talk about that kind of stuff? We do. Because if you want to go forward, sometimes you have to go backwards. I'm not saying you need to live back there, but we need to understand some things. And that's what Paul does. He desperately wants to move forward. He's going to do that through the rest of the letter. But in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, he handles something that is very heavy. It's heavy indeed. And we're going to look at that. So let me go through an outline with you, and it's a very simple outline. In verses 1 and 2, I want to talk a little bit about the direction of our life. That's number one, the direction of our life. Now we know Paul is praying, and he's interceding for the Ephesian Christians, and he's asking that they would have a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, that they would know the hope of the calling by which they have been called. And so Paul's desires for them and he's interceding for them because he wants them to have this experience with the spirit of the Lord to get what I would call a God glimpse. Have you ever had a God glimpse or glimpsing? Have you ever had that moment before the Lord and and it's happening more and more to people in our church where all of a sudden the scales of our eyes are peeled back and, and somehow we're transported into another realm and we can see things that we could not see in the flesh. And that's what Paul really wants for the Ephesians. Some of you know what I'm talking about and that experience is increasing more and more and that is, that is something to give praise to God. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. And it's not happened to you. And my prayer for you is that you would ask the Lord to remove any obstacle, any piece of baggage, any weight that you're carrying, any grieving of the spirit of the Lord that you might be doing in a habitual thing behind closed doors that you shouldn't be doing. So that you would have that experience, that God glimpse. So Paul is going to move through these verses. He begins verse one with and. It's a very important little word. Every little word is so important. Every word of God is pure, the psalmist said. Every word of God is inspired. And so that little word and is a transitional word. And Paul wants our thoughts to keep flowing. Remember the The titles that are in your Bible and the numberings were not in the original. It wasn't like that in Greek and Hebrew. It wasn't like there was chapter 2, verses 1 down to verse 10 in the Greek manuscripts. Those were added to help us to understand, maybe divide some thoughts and kind of move through a text in a way that might be a little bit more understandable. So Paul uses and, and he's still in that same thought as he was praying at the end of chapter 1. And he wants us to continue on, and he says some things like this, if you'll take your eyes to the text, chapter 2. And you were what? What's it say? You were dead. You were dead, he says to the Ephesians. Now let's talk about this. What's he meaning by you were dead? Does he mean physically dead? Obviously not. He is talking about spiritual death. He is saying to the Ephesians and he's saying to us that before Jesus, we were dead spiritually. There was no life. We were unable. We weren't connected to God. In fact, we were against God. We're called children of disobedience. We were aliens. We were enemies of God. These are other terms that Paul uses and other writers in the text of scripture to describe that we're dead, that there's no life inside of us. And he wants them to begin with something like this. It's heavy, it's hard, it's direct. But I like that about the apostle Paul. He says they were strained from God. There, There is no life, nothing there no response. I've been to many funerals, have done many funerals, and I see as the people come up to the open casket, and tears are flowing down their cheeks, and they're, they're talking to the, the dead person. They're talking to the corpse. They're trying to deal with the grief that's there, and they're, they're having this conversation with this, this dead person, almost as if they're expecting the person to respond, but the person will never respond. It doesn't matter if you put your head on their, your, their chest and you're like, please say something to me. Would you please give me some kind of sign? It will not happen because they're dead. And that's the same thing with us spiritually. This is how you were before Jesus saved you. You were dead. In fact, the Bible says in the text here, you once walked. In other words, you were walking dead. Can I show you an image Oh, Before You Met Jesus. Can we pull that up? There you are. The Walking Dead. There is a fascination with this Netflix series. I think it's Netflix, right? People are into this, and, and they're into zombies and people that are walking dead. In fact, this is our worship team. You can see Andy cutting in the back left over there. This is, of course, you got Scott. The le- I want you to see something. I want you to see that this is what Paul said. You, you once walked in this. This is, you want to walk, you were A dead man walking. You are a dead woman walking. There's no life. You stunk. Your your flesh is rotting. There is absolutely no hope for you and for me. This is where Paul's going in the second chapter at the beginning here. You'll notice in the text it says that we were following. Notice the direction. Now, we're talking about the direction of our life. He uses this word following the course of the world. What does that mean? That's talking about the value system. That's talking about the way that the world thinks. You see, we get so hung up on the exterior, you know, the stuff, the clothes, the, the hair off the ears, and the, you know, women that can't wear jeans and all that kind of stuff. That's not what he's talking about. That's not the course of this world. The course of the world is that their value system. The way that you thought before you met Jesus, that's the course of the world. The world is thinking something or contrary to what God is thinking. And he says that we were following the course of the world. This is where we were going. This is the direction of life. This is the path that we were on. You'll notice too, he goes on to say that we were following the prince of the power of the air. Do you know who that is? Who is that? Satan. You're saying, no, I wasn't a devil worshiper. Yes, you were. You're saying, no, I'm Anton LaVey and <laughs> me. We weren't connecting. I'm not Facebooking Anton LaVey. I, I just never, I didn't do He's a devil worshiper. He was under the influence of the devil. No, not just him. All of us. You're saying, but I was a good old Catholic boy. Man, I went to church growing up. That doesn't matter. The Bible says that you were following, as an unbeliever, the prince of the power of the air. That's the devil. That's demonic. You were under the influence. He's talking about under the influence of drinking. Scott was. You know, it says, be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit of God. You were consumed. You were a slave. You were dead. And you worshiped the Prince of the Power of the Air. And you didn't even know it. Is that kind of creepy to think that we were in that place? He calls it and he moves on. He says that we were rebels. He refers to us as sons of disobedience. And it's not just for males. It's it certainly as daughters of disobedience. You know, we walked in disobedience. We were rebels. It's called original sin. This is the fall of Adam and Eve. Who's more to blame? Here's a little trivia. Who's more to blame, Adam or Eve for all you theologians? Do you remember the story? The devil came to who first? Eve. And then what did Eve do? Gave it to her husband, and the the husband said, yeah, let me have a bite of that. Who gets blamed for it? Adam. Why does Adam get blamed for it? Of course, what did he do? God says, what are you doing? And he goes, it's that wife you gave me. It's her fault. Don't blame shift, guys. Just Just own your stuff. Don't blame your wife. It was crazy. It's in Genesis chapter three. So it's called original sin. It's the fall of man. The question would be when man fell, how far did they fall? Did they just hurt themselves? Some theologians and scholars and pastors would say, well, when man fell, they just hurt themselves really bad. And so now they're walking with this limp and and they they can just make some choices and then they can fix themselves. And that is contrary to what the scriptures teach. When man fell, it wasn't just they hurt themselves, man fell and they were dead. There is no life. Isn't that what the scripture says? When you eat of the tree, you will what? You will die spiritually. So that affected everything. That affected your mind, that affected your will. Now that's important because after that, you still did have a will, right? You used your free will a lot when you were a non-Christian. You put your socks on, hopefully they matched, right? You made choices about what you're gonna eat during the day, what job you're gonna try to get. That's that's will, but that's not the will we're talking about when it comes to salvation. You lost that. And I lost that in the fall. Dead means dead. Dead people don't choose God. They can't. They need an outside source come in. And this is what Paul is talking about here. He's going to talk about the gospel. He's going to talk about Jesus and what Jesus did, but we have to understand something. All of this happened at birth. In other words, you came out of your mommy's tummy, completely dead and a rebel. Throw that image up there because I just need to prove this to you. Because some of you are going, there's no way, no way, original sin, no way a rebel, a child of disobedience. Some people think that what we come into the world, is just, it's a baby, it's beautiful, and I love my baby, and there's no way that my baby came into this world fallen and dead spiritually. There is no way, and I don't want you to be deceived by thinking that. No matter how cute your little son or daughter was. Because when they came into this world, they were a reprobate. They were a child of disobedience. Now, some of you, and I know that you've just had babies recently, the hosses are celebrating a new baby. It's like, I've seen that little guy, man. He's cute. But I man, he's a rebel still. Fallen. Dead spiritually now, what they're gonna do is they're gonna pray for him, lead him to Jesus. Paul keeps moving through this, and he's talking about Adam and the fall. It's in Romans 5, if you ever wanna look at it, and it's just an amazing. Adam was the federal head of the human race, and all the posterity after Adam, which would be you and I, including all these new babies, uh, it was, they were affected by Adam. So Adam was to blame. He's the federal head. What that, he's a representative of the human race. So, this is fantastic because there was one who came who was then a federal head in the New Testament. Does anybody know who that is? Jesus Christ. In Adam, all die. In Christ, it says, all will be made alive. Federal head Adam, we all are dead. Federal head representative Jesus Christ, the Savior. We all live. Ephesians, I can just hear Paul praying, Holy Spirit, help them to see this. Help them to realize that they're incapable, that they're dead, that there's no hope. They're in a state of hopelessness before Christ. Help them, Holy Spirit, to realize that the direction of their life is, is one of a person that is the walking dead. Number two Let's look at the desires of our life. It's in verse 3. And Paul describes the spiritual deadness. And he mentions that we used to live this way, completely self-absorbed. The passions of our flesh, he mentions there. Carrying out the desires of our body. In other words, there's no regard. It's not righteousness. It's unrighteousness. It's not giving and sacrifice with a pure motive. It's never a pure motive. The only way you can get a pure motive is post-conversion, and even then it's hard. But before Jesus, we walked in the passions of our flesh and the desires. He mentions our mind. What was going through your mind? Does anybody have a problem with their thought life even to this day as a Christian? Come on, let's be honest, right? You have hatred in your heart sometimes. You want to punch somebody out. You know, you're lusting after somebody or, or whatever. We have problems still in our mind. It doesn't mean you're not converted, It just means you're tempted. But before you met Christ, this is just, just, I just thought like that, had no regard for God. I didn't think about Jesus. I didn't care. Because I'm dead. I'm dead. I was dead. And all of us were in that same condition. Some of you might be dead in this room. Some of you might have thought you were saved, but you're not. And this is where Paul's going with the Ephesians. Because when the greatness of salvation is displayed and and, and Paul's looking at that, he's praying that the Ephesians grab a hold of that. And when you grab a hold of that and you start to see how spectacular that panoramic view is of election, redemption and inheritance, you know, something wonderful has happened to you. But then again, if you come up to the edge of that rim, like the Grand Canyon, you're like, yeah, just a hole in the ground. Something's really wrong in your spiritual life. You might need Jesus, but you're saying, no, no, I've been raised to a Christian. My dad and mom were Christians, and they led me to Jesus when I was just a kid. That's not how you tell. I love this. Uh, Paul is, I love it because it just magnifies the gospel. It magnifies Jesus when we realize that God did this. can I go back to a child? And this is going to just melt your heart. Can we throw that up there? It's going to, it's just like, you're like, (laughs) Chris, you're going to have to convince me even more from the text of scripture that that man is fallen and dead and rebels when they come out. Do not be deceived by that picture. (laughs) Because if we had the gift of interpretation, any time that this baby freaks out all over his or her mom, is it a he or she? I can't tell. If you could could understand what your child is actually saying in that moment of time when they're screaming at the top of their lungs, what are they saying? Dad, I hate you. You better be quicker about getting my bottle, Mom, because I just can't stand that you're taking so long. You ever wonder what your child is thinking when they're screaming at the top of their lungs and you don't know what they're talking about? Do you think they're thinking about you? I just love my mom. Look at how great she looks today. My dad, he works so hard at the job, eight, nine, 10 hours overtime. Do you think that's what they're thinking? No, they care about only themselves. <laughs> if they could talk, and they're trying to talk, they'd be swearing at you. You're thinking, that's crazy. No, I really believe that. And then you have to train your child how to behave, right? Does anybody have like, young kids here and you're trying to train your... Why do you have to try to cha- train them to behave? why don't they just come out right at birth and they're just like completely obedient because they're dead the bible says they're children of wrath we understand something when we say that god is wrathful we think man he is just uptight he's mad his veins are bulging out of his neck he's got anger problems it doesn't mean that think about the love of god in the exact opposite of the love of god In other words, the love of God is being shed abroad. It's being presented to us in the gospel in Jesus. And if I simply say no to that gospel, I'm under the wrath. In other words, you're going to face the justice of God. Your sin has to be faced. And Jesus faced it. So one day when you stand before God, and if you're not a Christian, he's going to be looking. He's not going to be looking at you. He's going to be looking for his son in you because Jesus is the one who satisfied the wrath of God. Please don't try to go into heaven. Don't try to go through the gates without Jesus. It's gonna be a bad day for you. And then he's gonna say to you, I never knew you. Because I've never seen my son in you. So Paul continues on. It is hard, right? Who wants to talk about something so heavy and so so weighty? So he gives us the bad news first, right? You ever heard that? Do you want the bad news first or the good news? Who usually says bad news first? Anybody like that? You're like, okay, pessimists, right? Optimists are the ones. I just want the good news. They're the ones in denial too. I just want good news. Don't ever tell me about bad news. You need bad news. And that's what Paul's doing this is the bad news. Now we're going to transition here. We're going to move quickly through this verses four to seven. Let's talk about the depth of God's attributes because there's two words there. And when Ralph was reading, it, it was so wonderful because he got to this, but God, but God, you could do a sermon just on those two words. This is a change. He's talking about deadness, the fall, corruption, separation, but God. And that's what God does. He's going he's to bring you through some stuff. He's going to allow some stuff to come into your life. And then there's going to be a transition moment. And, and you're going to start to see things clearer. And you're going to be like, wow, God, you're with me all the time. You're so loving to me. And you're so good and kind. And it'll be that but God moment, you see. But he has to allow you to go through this tough stuff first. And then you're going to have that transition. And that's what he does here with these two words, but God. And he's talking about mercy. Notice it in the text. This transition is wonderful. He talks about the attributes of mercy. And God is a merciful God. In fact, the Bible says that God's mercies are new when? Every morning. Why do we need mercy every morning? I just said this to the Lord not not that long ago, probably a week and a half ago, and I said it repeatedly in my prayer time. I said, God, thank you so much for your mercy because I know that I can be a knucklehead, right? I can be a jerk. I can be sinful. Don't leave me up here alone, right? Come on, anybody else with me? Mercy. Ask him for mercy. But notice this. It's, it's great love. He says there's this love coming from God. This is his attribute, the love of God. God gives you mercy, and out of that is his love towards you and towards me. We're helpless enemies of God, yet the love of God has come in the person of Christ, in the gospel, through the spirit of the Lord. And now we can experience his mercy and we can experience his love. I don't want you to miss the word rich there. Rich, he's rich in mercy. And he moves on and says, even when we were dead in trespasses, notice it. Even when we were dead in trespasses. In other words, I'm a dead man walking. I am treading into places that God says, do not go there like the tree of life. And Adam and Eve didn't regard that and did what they shouldn't have done, and went and ate of the tree. No trespassing. <laughs> and, and by nature, that's what I was, the, the guy who would see a sign that said, no trespassing, and what would I do? I'm passive aggressive. Anybody else in the house like me? So there was a cornfield. It's not the cornfield you'll see on the screen here, but there was a cornfield near my house, and it was like no trespassing. So young Chris, about nine, ten years old, Went up into the cornfield and had matches. And I figured I'd try to, you know, see if the matches would, would um, like, basically burn down the, the cornfield. It was awful. I just meant to play with the matches with my friends. And all of a sudden it fell and the corn stalk started to go ablaze and started moving towards these homes. And I freaked out and I started running. And I was hiding in my house. And all of the fire trucks from all over came and saved those houses that were surrounding the cornfield. I was trespassing. I went into that realm. And when I came back out of that, my mom and dad finally found me behind a closed door. Even when they showed me mercy. They showed me love. This is what the gospel is. What gets me is I still trespass sometimes, right? I still do that. And I cross over a line sometimes, and I do something I shouldn't do, and think something I shouldn't think, and say something I shouldn't say. But then there's still mercy for me and you, right? It's a beautiful gospel. It says in the text here that he made us alive. It was God that made me alive. It was God that made you alive. All of it in the gospel, all of it by grace alone, sola gratia, That's what the reformers called it. It's grace alone. It's not not because I contributed anything. It wasn't because of me, anything good in me or you. It's just simply God's grace coming towards a person. By grace you have been saved, he said here. These are attributes. These are things about God and his character and about who he is as he's putting that on display towards us as believers. What's the response of the grace of the Lord? By grace you have been saved, he said there. It should be gratitude. Do you know what I find when we talk about this doctrine of election or redemption is nothing, it doesn't have anything to do with us. It's, all God, God did this. You know what I find? Christians are agitated by that. And they fight against it and they chafe against that. And I told you a few weeks ago, I said, I did that for a long time. And God took me to the mat and God beat me. And rightfully so, because he is the potter and I'm just clay. And when I realized that I was clay and he's the potter, man, something changed inside of me. And the gospel became so much more beautiful to me because God is the one who saved me. He made me alive. I didn't make myself alive. I couldn't. Do you see where he's going with all of this? Now watch this. This This is fantastic. There's a lot of theology. We don't have time to go through a lot of this, but He says that we were raised up. Look at verse six. We were raised up with him, being Jesus. Jesus is raised from the dead. Who goes with him at the time? This will take a lot of your harvest group conversation. So when Jesus is raised from the dead, did you go with him? You're saying, I wasn't even around at the time. Save that for your harvest group. I'll be curious as to what conclusion you come to. I have a position on that, but I'm not gonna tell you right now. Of that. I'm raised with him. But notice it goes even further. We're seated with him. So when were you seated with him? You're saying when I believed, when I repented, when I, Christ came into my life. Could be. Or maybe you were seated with him when he was seated at the right hand of the father. You're saying, wait a minute, that doesn't even... This is where we're, we're digging into things that where we need our scales peeled back and our eyes open because there are some truths here. And this is the word of God. The word of God have multi-levels of incredible depth because it's supernatural. But I want you to see something here too. It says that we were seated with him where? Where's the, the location? In the heavenly places, in the heavenly places. In other words, I live in two places at the same time. This gets kind of wild. I'm living right now in this moment of time, but the Bible says I'm also living in the heavenlies at the exact same time. I just can't comprehend it. I can't fully grab it. Remember, it's like we're looking through glass dimly. Remember the guy that couldn't see and it was just like trees, and then all of a sudden Jesus puts spit on his eyes and he could see clear? This is what we're talking about here. When Paul was caught up into the third heaven, he went into this heavenly place And he was able to see all of that. I don't think most of us have had that experience. I'm not saying it couldn't happen. But I'm living in two places at the same time. That's wild. This is a glorious gospel. Colossians 1.13 says that we were translated. I'm going to ask you, do you believe that? Translated. You've gone from darkness to light. You've gone from here to there. We just need to learn how to live like we're there, not live like we're here. So verse 7, you'll notice it says, so that, what's the purpose of all of this? Let me look at verse 7 with you, if you would read it to yourself as I read out loud. Chapter 2, verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus there's a plan unfolding. There's a demonstration. There's an exhibition going on. And it's in the church and it's in the Christian who's been redeemed. And that person is being put on display. And the church is moving through history and through time. And this glorious gospel, who God is, is now manifesting through his church. And God has taken Jew and he's taken Gentile and he's brought them together in this marvelous thing called the church through election and through redemption and inheritance. This is the attributes of God working in and all through the gospel. Number four and finally, the deliverance of God's actions, verses 8 to 10. Now, in verse 8, you'll see Paul repeats himself, and he says, by grace you have been saved. He says that two times, for by grace you have been saved. It's a work of God. We would call that a God-at-work story. Salvation is of the Lord. And remember who said that? Went on a short trip in a big fish. Who was that? It was Jonah. Jonah. Jonah is the one who said salvation is of the Lord. It's through faith. Faith is the vehicle, but it really is grace first. This is why some Christians will brag on their faith. Well, I chose Jesus. Well, something happened before there was faith. It was regeneration. It was grace being put on display, moving towards you. And then God did the work inside of you so that faith was the response to the gospel. It has to be a God thing. And Paul says that we were saved by grace. Notice in the text, it says there, not your own doing. Do you see where I'm at? Not your own doing. Just let that go through your mind over and over again. Over and over again, not your own doing. Talking about salvation, verse nine, it's not a result of works, right? It's not my works, it's the work of God towards us. He put his life inside of you. And it says there that no one should boast. Has anybody ever bragged before? Anybody? Third grade, I said this story before, it's just really quickly. I went to my third grade teacher, Mr. Holberg, and he was, his son played uh, minor league pro baseball. And I said to him, I said, I'm the greatest baseball player ever. This is what I said in my third grade class, right to his face. I'm standing right over him. Mr. Holberg, I am the best baseball player Ever. And he goes, well, you must be pretty good. I said, no, Mr. Hoger, I am the best baseball player ever. And he's looking at me like, this poor kid, he needs counseling. And he just said, okay, that's great. We're talking about boasting here. We can't boast or brag about our salvation. The Bible says that we were saved. It's an action of God towards a person. Let me show you a picture of a deep well. It's about 100 feet, maybe more. Suppose you found yourself at the bottom of this well. You had fallen down in there. For some reason, you survived. That would be a miracle in itself. But you're at the bottom. Are you getting yourself out of the well on your own, in your own strength, yes or no? No. You need an outside person to come and rescue you. Suppose somebody came by one day, and they said, man, what are you doing down there? Are you okay? And they got a rope, and they set that rope down in there, and they pulled you out. Would you come out of that well bragging? Who would do that? You would get out of that well, and so would I, and I'd be like, I'd be bragging on that person that rescued me from that well, right? Doesn't that make sense? I couldn't imagine somebody coming out of there and going, look what I just did. Paul goes on, and he says, listen, we are his workmanship. It says, we are his workmanship. He is the one. Is doing the work. We are God's handiwork. I mentioned to you that we are clay and he's the potter. Let me show you one more image here. And then I'm gonna bring it to a conclusion. It's the Philadelphia Art Museum. And so you might have been there. Maybe you did the steps like Rocky, right? Everybody has to do that. I did that not long ago. I got to the top. I'm like, like Fred Sanford. I'm like, I'm coming. I'm coming. Remember that guy? That was not wise of me to run up those steps at 52 years old. But I got to the top because I want to be like Rocky. Suppose that I went into the museum, which I've never been. I've been to other art museums, Washington Art Museum, other ones. And and I, I came out of there and I said to myself, Man, did you see the pieces of work that I did in there? Would you think I'm just a little bit crazy? Suppose I came out of the art museum and I'm just doing that Rocky thing. I'm at the top of the steps. I'm like, Yeah, look what I did. Look what I did. I made all of this. This is my workmanship. That would be foolish. But this is what the church is doing about salvation. They come out and they think, look what I did. And they're at the top of the steps and they're just like hooting and hollering. Look what I did. And God is looking at that and going, you didn't do that. I did that. Why are you elevating yourself so high thinking that you rescued yourself? I'm the one that saved you. But man, across the evangelical landscape, there are so many Christians that are at the top of those steps thinking that they're the ones that did the work inside of them when it comes to salvation. And we didn't. We didn't. So where is this all going? And I'm gonna close with these thoughts. This is where it goes. Man, if God did all of this, what are you going through? Really? Really? if God saved us like this and it was dramatic and it was by grace and it was His love, we were once children of disobedience and rebels. And, and if God did all of that and you're going through some junk right now, some hard stuff, don't you think that he is still strong to save? Don't you think that that person that we just prayed about, don't you think that they can come to Christ and be changed and be healed. Don't you think that that depression that you're struggling with for all of these years can be overcome? If it is from God and it is our salvation, everything after that should cause us to go, God, I just exalt you. I praise you. Because God, you did this. Let's stand to our feet. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for going on mission. The Father gave you the mission to come and die. We thank you that you fulfilled that mission. You died for us. You went down into that deep well where we were trapped, and you brought us out. We give you praise for that. We thank you for that. Holy Spirit, you're the one that opened our understanding. You opened our eyes to the gospel. You did the work of regeneration and putting life inside of us even before we believed there was life being generated so that we could believe. Fantastic. God, help us to get this massive panoramic view of salvation that it's by grace alone that we are saved. Humble us with this and help us to be encouraged because this truth will take us this is what you meant in a lot of reasons for this, Lord. For us to be able to make it from glory to glory and from this thing to the next, that's really hard. If we can just go back, this is how we live the Christian life. This is what Paul is wanting them to realize. You live the Christian life by a high view of the doctrine of salvation. You lower the doctrine of salvation and make it more man, we're in trouble. You elevate it, make it all God, and the rest of our Christian life can be lived in victory and success and faithfulness. But if you tamper with that, you devalue it, you tear it apart, and you say, well, this is man. And man, I did this. No, no. God, please help us to see what Paul was saying here. We sing your praises, Lord. We give you glory and honor. Let's worship him. And think about the salvation that's so great and glorious. Ask God to show you some things, even during this psalm. Hallelujah, in Jesus' name.